we arrive on the scene in Daniel chapter 5, it's important to realize the setting that we have in Babylon. The city was sizable, covering 15 square miles. The city was protected by 56 miles of wall, hovering 300, excuse me, 320 feet in the air. This is, this is a huge wall, and at the top of the wall, so imagine the base of the wall, but at the top of the wall, it's wide enough for four chariots to pass one another in opposite directions. This is the width of a six-lane highway at the top of a 56 uh, miles of wall. How would you feel inside of that? Pretty secure? Sure you would. And that's the way Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, Belshazzar felt. The city was well fortified, sup, uh, supplied with, they say, 20 years of staples, 20 years of food, and they didn't lack for water because they had a canal that came off the, the uh, Euphrates River and flowed right through the city. Tuck that away, too, because it'll come back to haunt them. King Cyrus has led the Medo-Persia troops to conquer most of the surrounding area. But this young king, Belshazzar, has little concern for his safety, feeling quite secure within the mighty walls of his grandfather's city of Babylon. And so would you. Well, without a care in the world, we read Belshazzar's defiant feast. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. You know what I'm going to say about that. Verse 2, Belshazzar, while he was uh, tested the wine, he commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple. Remember this story goes way back now to chapter 1, which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, they all drank out of them. They drank wine and praised the gods, small g, of gold. Remember Murdoch that we've talked about? And silver, and brass, and iron, and wood, and stone. Kind of sounds like that, that image that haunted Nebuchadnezzar early on. Remember that? dream that he had. Now, I know you get tired of me saying it, but you know I'm going to say it anyway. Such things as when you start off this whole story, what's going on? Liquor has forever been the prop of weak men and women. Whatever else you think about it. Though it's not considered a drug, I get that, but alcohol is the number one drug problem in our nation as far as I'm concerned. While fentanyl currently kills more young adults, there are still more alcoholics in our nation than there are drug addicts. And of course, you probably know by now that more than half, just slightly more than half of all fatal car accidents are involved with what? Alcohol. Many billions of dollars are spent annually by Americans on alcohol. Alcohol is wrecking cars, it's wrecking homes, it's wrecking lives. There can be no denying the impact of alcohol's appeal and advertisement upon our youth. And by the way, in case it missed your newscast, alcohol is now available at Beaver Stadium, and it's coming to a stadium near you. Great nations have been ruined by alcohol, and don't think for a minute that your family 
your life or our nation will be any different. Whatever else you think about it, the ruin caused by this one topic. Well, alcohol often allows people to do what they would not otherwise dare. And as a result, Belshazzar's boldness. This party may be defiant against the enemies that are surrounding the city. Like, oh yeah, we don't care, and so we're all just having a big, big party, kind of relax everybody. It party may be an effort to embolden his troops with the imminent danger that is surrounding them, to kind of bolden, embolden them. Whatever the case, at this point, alcohol emboldened them to disregard the decrees of Nebuchadnezzar as he calls for the vessels of Jehovah. And you may remember back to chapter 1, we read of the once wicked king Nebuchadnezzar invading Jerusalem, destroying the temple, and grabbing all the gold out of the temple in those vessels, and he brought them back to Babylon for himself. As a child, Belshazzar probably had been told, leave him alone or stay out of that room. You know how we tell kids that sort of thing. Maybe was told that by Nebuchadnezzar himself because Belshazzar was around 14 years of age when Nebuchadnezzar died. Well, with little alcohol in his veins, his friends by his side, an army at his flanks surrounded by an enormous fortress, he defies everyone and everything he has ever been told. By the way, the word father there in verse 2, you read that and you might think, well, he's the son of who? Nebuchadnezzar. But the word father, when it's used loosely, is just lineage or legal standing. Belshazzar is more likely the grandson-in-law, so no direct blood lineage, but the grandson-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. But still he knew full well whom he was defying. If you go down to verse 22, he wasn't just defying Nebuchadnezzar. He is defying who? God. That's exactly right. Because he would not humble himself. Well, we see his intent to defy Nebuchadnezzar and God as we read of Belshazzar's blasphemy. <clears throat> so he's instructed his young man. He now uses the untouchable to do the unthinkable. They not only drank wine from the golden goblets there in verse 3, but they used them to worship their gods, right? Gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, stone there in verse 4. Of course, you know they had a god for everything. We've seen that before. In Babylon's temple Marduk, the god of gold, held the golden vessels of worship from all conquered people from around the empire. So it held these vessels. But Belshazzar singled out the vessels, not just of anyone, but of Jehovah. It would seem in direct defiance of the prophecy that he heard about the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. They can take all the other land he scoffed, I'm sure, but they'll never take Babylon. But I remind you, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God whose hand now suddenly appears and we see a dramatic finger, verse 5. So in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and he wrote over against the candlestick, nobody, just a hand. Pretty creepy. And he wrote over against the candlestick upon the, the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees knocked one against another. 
And the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans. We've, we've heard this before, right? When the king is upset, he brings in all the supposed wise men, the astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me in the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be, now notice this, third in the kingdom. Why third in the kingdom? I'll say it again. Because he was second. So he couldn't make somebody else second. He's already second. But I'll make him third, okay? Just a little odd thing that stands out there. Then came all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known the king, uh, the interpretation thereof. Then the king Belshazzar greatly, was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. This was the finger of the one who would judge all the earth. It's the same finger, I think. It stooped down later in the New Testament and wrote in the ground when everybody else was ready to condemn others. Right? Remember that? And Jesus stooped down and said, He is without sin. You cast the first stone. I think it's the finger of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the appearance of just this finger, this hand, caused overwhelming fear. I have no doubt that most of them, being drunk, assumed Belshazzar's staggering and shaking was because of alcohol. His joints were like rubber, his knees were knocking, his countenance was changed, and he sobered up quickly. He was scared literally to death, and he could not stand. Later in Daniel's prophecy, chapter 11, and then later on, we are told that none will be able to stand against the judgment of God at his appearing. For anyone who wants to be defiant against God... You may seem to get away with it for now and here on earth, but there is coming a day that this hand will stand in judgment over your life. Later, and I repeat it again in Hebrews chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, this overwhelming failure, once again we read the wise men failed to answer the king and respond to the message that God had left Belshazzar. He's now punched drunk. His ego is deflated. And, he, and notice what he, what he promises there, fancy clothes, golden jewelry. And again, third, verse, uh, verse 7, third in the kingdom. Remember, he's second. So he's, he's recognizing that off the bat. He can't promise what he, what he doesn't have. Not going to give up his own place. None of the king's advisors could calm him down. They were equally troubled and perplexed. None of them, uh, again, could answer, and so this is the perfect time, as they've done it at least twice before, this is the perfect time to go find the guy that can answer it. And who is that? It's Daniel, right? Let's get Daniel. Let's get Daniel. So we know the fame of Daniel, recalled, first of all, by the queen, verse 10. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom the king, the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of the dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel whom the king had named Belteshazzar. 
Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation thereof. So I read this title, Queen, also. So we know thy father, that's, that's lineage. And then you see the word queen. Your first thought might be, well, if he's king, then who must this queen be? But remember, he's, he's already second in command. This is like saying queen mother. This is very likely the wife of the former great king, Nebuchadnezzar, and don't you know that she has some stories to tell because she lived through all those things she had seen of Nebuchadnezzar. And it was not the wife of Nabonidus, for they had settled far away into Arabia. So who better to recall the fame of Daniel than the one who had seen her husband so influenced and changed by his testimony? So now this perhaps elderly, grandmotherly type queen was certainly not part of the drunken feast, but she hears what's going on. She certainly wouldn't appear on her own, but she knows that in this circumstance, without any threat to the king's authority, she came in and she could get away with approaching him and perhaps whispering in his ear, probably not a public announcement, but what we just read, hey, how about getting Daniel to come in? And although Daniel had been discarded as an elderly, out-of-touch, old prophet, as irrelevant, there could be no denying his fame. And so it is recounted by the king there as we read on verse 13. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake. So Belteshazzar speaks to, I mean Belshazzar speaks to Belteshazzar, said to Daniel, Art thou that Daniel which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of the Jewry? I have even heard of thee that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee, and thou canst make interpretation and dissolve doubts, which, by the way, is a beautiful little phrase. We'll look maybe at that on Wednesday night. Now if thou canst read the writing... And make known to me the interpretation thereof. Thou shalt be clothed with scarlet, have a chain of gold about thy neck, like this is going to impress Daniel, and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. And uh, so all these things are promised to him, and Daniel answers. And notice again, the best he can offer, third place in the kingdom. Recognition, he's second place. But Daniel spurns all the gifts, and he speaks with disparaging focus down on this man, verse 17. And he says before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself. I don't want what you have. Keep it to yourself. There's a different tone. Do you remember when he paused before? Do you remember when, Be- when Nebuchadnezzar told him of a dream and it troubled Daniel so much that it took an hour for him to just sort of gather his thoughts to come and speak? The, the sense of it here is different. And let thy gifts be to thy seed. You keep it. I don't want it. Give thy rewards to another. I don't care about it. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Where did it come from? The God of heaven. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, 
languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would slew, and whom he would keep alive, and whom he would uh, set up, and whom he would put down. And when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, this is Nebuchadnezzar's heart in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass. Remember this whole story from last time. Seven years went by till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. So you knew all this, you've seen it all, you heard the stories, but you would not humble yourself but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And they gave, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou, thy lords, thy wives, thy concubines, have drunk wine in them. Thou hast praised the gods of silver, gold, brass, iron, wood, stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast not you have not glorified. So Belshazzar knew all of this. He knew all the intention of it. He knew all the outcome of it. But in his own pride, and that's the way many people get, they, they know the stories Grandma told. They know the stories of the Bible. They know what even our nation has been through, what other people have done to secure perhaps benefits that we have today, but just live in total disregard. Daniel's tone was vastly different than it was back in chapter 4. When he, we heard him speak to his friend Nebuchadnezzar, wishing the judgment could have been for someone else. This time, Daniel seems to hold out no hope for this young brat of a king and seems almost delighted that God is finally speaking judgment over his pride. Well, the focus of God's message is first the reminder of his past. Again, we see the reminder that there is a God in heaven, Elion, who sits on the throne from whom Nebuchadnezzar received his authority. There is not before, there is not now, there is not ever an absolute king on this earth like that of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, you, young man, are no Nebuchadnezzar, and you have no chance against the God who put your great-grandfather Nebuchadnezzar in his place. The reason for Israel's judgment was a generation that did not have any regard for the Lord or the works which he had done for the children of Israel. And this young brat had forgotten the works of the Lord to his grandfather. And may I just say and hear me clearly, there is an attitude in our land, and I believe it has crept into our churches as well. And I know you're going to say I sound like just an old, funky old guy that's out of touch with everything. But there is in our land today, and even in our churches today, an attitude that holds tradition with contempt and has forgotten, if not forsaken, what it took to bring us to what we now have. As if it will continue, and God will never do anything to judge us, and we can get away with it. Thus saith the Lord, Jeremiah, stand in the ways, see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? Walk therein, you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, and this generation says, 
we will not walk therein. Belshazzar has no respect for his past. He has no patience for authority. And the focus of Daniel's message is now a reminder of his pride. He has been spoken to because he would not humble his heart, verse 22. He has been judged because he lifted himself up, verse 23, against the God of heaven. Remember, respect for authority is ultimately a respect of who? Of God. If, in fact, it is true what we believe, and I believe it is, that no authority exists apart from God, a disregard for authority is a disregard for God. Nothing reveals pride against the God of heaven like the general disregard for authority that we see in our land today. doesn't mean they're perfect. Nebuchadnezzar certainly wasn't perfect. doesn't mean they won't be judged. Nebuchadnezzar was judged in his pride. But he that being often reproved, Proverbs 29, and hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That's Belshazzar. Having hardened his neck against the God of heaven, he now stands in a place without any remedy. Daniel concludes his message by saying, The finger which you saw was from the hand of Elion, the God of heaven, against which you have hardened yourself. There seems to be no remedy. You remember there was a remedy for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? Seven years, you'll get this chance. There seems to be no second chance for uh, Belshazzar. I think that seems to speak generally to the nature of people today when knowing all of our history, knowing everything church has been through, knowing everything about the fathers of, of church, everything we know and have now taken for granted, there seems to be coming a day where there's no second chance, right? You've heard me say it before, the point of no return. That's where Belshazzar is. Well, this is uh, now Darius's fulfillment, verse 24 of chapter 5. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this was the writing therein. And you see it there, verse 25. Mene, mene, tekel, euphorsen. Now, this is a pretty heavy message, so I want you to, while you're, while you're mulling on all that, I want to tell you this story, which will help you just sort of digest everything. i got to tell you this. So the, here we have this foreigner who's vi visiting his daughter in the United States. He comes now. He's got a pretty heavy accent. Doesn't really understand all the American English really well. The old foreigner sat down with his daughter, finally came to church, sat down with his daughter in church to listen to the preacher. And he tells this story about the handwriting on the wall, mene, mene. Tekel Eupharsin. And when the preacher said that, he grabbed his daughter, got up, and left the church. And his daughter said, Dad, what's, what's wrong? He said to his daughter, Minnie, didn't you hear what the old preacher said? Minnie, Minnie, tickle the parson. You know, you know who the parson is? Forget it. <laughs> The parson, you never sing any Christmas songs about the old parson? Oh, come on. Many, many. Tickle the parson. Oh, well. 
Must be. He was probably from West Virginia. Well, that is not, that's not Daniel's interpretation. Verse 26. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many, what's that? God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, what's that? Thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Verse 29, then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third in the kingdom, like, like this hasn't ever been said of Daniel before. And in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius and the Median, the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. He's about my age, right? 62 years of age, he comes in. What is this teaching us? Number one, life and death are in the hands of God. Life and death are in the hands of God. Mene translated number. God has numbered the days of Belshazzar in Babylon. Today we might simply say his number was up. You've heard people reference it that way. So teach us, right? Psalm 90. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our heart to wisdom. Repeated together, Mene, Mene suggests that both life and death are in the Lord's hands. Back in Daniel chapter 2, we read the Lord removes the kings, he sets up others. Job said, your days are determined, the number of your months are with the Lord. God has appointed man's bounds, and you won't pass. Right? Your days are numbered. Right? You know that. As we live longer, sometimes we have a greater sense of it. But nobody will live one day longer than God has determined. Not only is life and death in the Lord's hands, but also the second part of that interpretation reveals that victory and defeat are in the Lord's hands. So the word tekel there in verse 27 is to be weighed against a standard and fall short. You've heard that phrase before. Perez, verse 28, is to be broken or divided. This now introduces us to the divided kingdom of the Medos and the Persian. Remember that? Remember that image that was drawn for us before that Nebuchadnezzar saw, and there at the, at the vest part, and the two, this, the Medo-Persian empire now is taking place. About four months prior was uh, the interpretation, and Belshazzar was no conquering hero. God was about to let another conquer and take his kingdom from him. The king to conquer is waiting just outside the city, the division is obvious. It's part of prophecy. It's about to take place. King Darius had devised a plan. Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire. King Darius had devised a plan to divert the water from the canal. Remember that canal I told you about? And even while Daniel was preaching this sermon to Belshazzar, the troops of the Medo-Persian army were moving under the walls of Babylon. Historians record that before the city guards even noticed on this night, they had taken the city. And Belshazzar was slain. Babylon, the great city, falls. Belshazzar has been weighed according to God's standard and found wanting. For any who express pride against this God of heaven... I remind you what we're told in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned. You've been weighed in the balance. And you will fall short of the glory of God.
Now, I don't want to sound like an alarmist or like I know something that you know, no one else has ever thought of before or any way like that, but there's more than one way to destroy a nation. And while border walls and all those things seem important to secure us, the enemy may already be among us. Listen to what I read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, authorities, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, and even those who have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He says, from such turn away. I don't know. Is there handwriting on the wall? Sure feels like it some days. What will become of America when we cease to do God's bidding? In our nation, is it on fire while our leaders fiddle away our 